0: Hey folks, Scott Weingart here, and this is the MCRIT Podcast. Today, we're kind of in a lull between Thanksgiving and the uh, winter holidays, the one I celebrate being winter solstice. I'm not a Wiccan, but I do like the holidays that are actually linked to nature and the cycles of our lunar world and all of the great things around that. So that's the winter holiday I celebrate. And Since Thanksgiving has just passed, let me take a moment to thank all of you who listen to the podcast, who send in thoughts and ideas and keep me a better doctor, as well, especially to the people that subscribe to MCRIP membership and actually fund the ability of this podcast to continue. I mean, I've mentioned this when we made the decision to actually start this as a membership site, that it had become untenable to keep it as foam just due to the exigencies of the workload and the uh, cost of actually maintaining it. Uh, things don't move linearly in this world. They move uh, exponentially, and you, you reach these plateaus where things seem okay for a while, and then you hit the next one, and it, it's not on an order of a slight increase. It's a 10x, 20x increase, and uh, it became untenable. So the people that actually support the show and make this possible, to you, I give the greatest thanks because MCRIT is my life work. Um, and without you, it would not be continuing. So thank you. For the folks that haven't yet joined, if you have the means to do so, if you get a CME fund or you have uh, spare funds that you could use and then deduct on your taxes, please consider becoming a member at MCRIT.org join. All right, let's get right into the show. I figured since we are approaching the end of the year. It would be worthwhile to just do a question and answer show. So this is gonna be kind of a melange of various topics that I've received as questions in my inbox and I just kind of accumulate them and I plan to do these regularly, probably quarterly. And uh, I hope to get a guest host on for this. There's someone I have in mind. Uh, She hasn't responded yet, but there would be someone I think very fun for these Q&A shows. We'll see how that plays out. But for now, let's get right to the questions. All right, the first question I got from the Stony Brook Emergency Medicine Residency, and they actually described a patient who came in with a grievous traumatic brain injury, obvious increased intracranial pressure given both a blown pupil and then an eventual CT scan with significant shift. And they discovered the patient's sodium was 113, it was found out later on that the patient had uh, beer potomania. And their question was, well, how do you deal with ICP increase in the setting of hyponatremia? And I've received this question in the past, it's a great question. So what you should understand is that when we push the sodium to increase the osmolar gradient, Uh, What we're actually trying to do is not push to a specific number. We're trying to push relative to their baseline osmolality. So normally what we'll do in in the setting of increased intracranial pressure in the acute phase is we'll take them from the normal sodium of 140 to something like 150. We'll push them there very rapidly, this 10-point increase thereabouts. Um, Whether you do that with the hypertonic salines or mannitol, that's, in essence, the osmolality you're trying to get to is somewhere akin to that. Now, obviously, their sodium won't increase if you use um, the mannitol, but that it's essentially you're trying to get the same osmolar gradient. Uh, now, being said, I don't use mannitol uh, for the acute phase. Uh, I can't remember the last time I thought that was a good idea. I'm pretty much all in the hypertonic world uh, and in the acute phase. Later on, there may be some call for it. But, uh, so I'm really trying to push their sodium to generate that osmolar gradient. And you know, if I take them from 140, to 150, that kind of gives you an idea where to be. So if the patient's sodium came back at 113, then I'm going to try to push them around 123. You know, 123 ish is the range I'm trying to push for. And oftentimes to do that, it's going to take uh, you know the equivalent of about 500 cc's so of 3% hypertonic saline. Um, now. You absolutely are safe to give the three percent peripherally, and you're absolutely safe. We know to knock them up to twelve within the first twenty four hours. Now, oftentimes we'll only knock them up, you know, half a cc per hour. In this case, you might go quicker, but still stop at that same point, that same you know, ten to twelve in that first twenty four hours. So, if I had a patient with a intracranial pressure increase and hyponatremia, I would want to knock them up about ten points on that sodium, you know, millimoles per liter and stop there and hold them there. And that might mean, especially in a case like this with the beer pony mania, that I actually have to give them DDAVP to shut down their urinary system and then um, balance out other fluids they might wind up getting Um, with potentially some D5W, depending on the osmolality of the other fluids, just to keep them in that first 24 hours right around that 10 to 12 mark. So that's how you handle it. So if they're at 113, you'll send them down up to 123, try to just lock them there for the first 24 hours. That will give you an osmotic gradient sufficient to decrease the ICP. Um, Now, I think you do kind of run out of the room of pushing them further than that uh, in this case you know, I guess you have a little bit of leeway, but it's not as free a zone as it might be uh, for a patient without that. Baseline hyponatremia. And you know, to get down to 113, it's got to be chronic. You'd be uh, screwed if you did that in just a little while. Um, So I think you do need to be careful. Now, the osmotic demyelination, it's a rare syndrome. And you could argue that the risk benefits of uh, decreasing their ICP is worthwhile to push them a little bit further than what I'm saying. But what I will say is, in a case like this, um, they probably need some form of intervention, whether that means a craniectomy or uh, in other circumstances that aren't GBI, some of the other modalities to decrease ICP, like, a, for instance, a EVD in a patient who has a uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage, for instance. But uh, that that's my initial answer. It's push them around that same 10 um, and just take their baseline and push them from there. All right. Another question I got during these uh, Stony Brook EM Grand Rounds is... Is it ever okay not to believe your art line? They had a patient who um, a radial art line was reading like 60 over 20, and they didn't believe it because the patient was... uh, maintaining fine and you know was talking to them and they're like oh it's impossible uh, it wasn't actually them. it was a, a competing service that they were dealing with and uh, you know one of the excellent residents just placed ephemeral because he's like okay well maybe there might be a discrepancy just due to the fact that uh, it's patient who uh, we think may be bleeding and they're so constricted that that radial uh, is not accurate and that that is possible the radial in the setting of profound vasoconstriction like you'll see in a young patient with exsanguination uh, it's not the most accurate measure in fact we, we preferentially want a central arterial line, whether it be axillary or femoral, um, to uh, obviate that bias from the vasoconstriction. So they placed the femoral, said the same thing, and the competing service still did not want to believe it. Now, this is where it gets silly. You know, if you have a femoral art line that gives you a blood pressure, and you know, if you want to zero it again yourself, you can, but if it's zeroed out and you check where the um, transducer is actually sitting and it's sitting in the right place and you zeroed it and everything looks okay, that's your number, you just gotta live with that even though it doesn't seem right. So uh, yes, do trust your central arterial access. Um, Oftentimes if you're getting a reading with a waveform, it's real. You know, and like I said, you know, make sure the transducer's in the right place, re-zero. But if it's still giving you a number, that's your number, even if it seems discrepant to the patient's clinical state. But it does bring up the issue. You can't use mental status as a marker of uh, what the patient's blood pressure is, depending on the uh, vascular tone and what have you in the patient's individual physiology. They can be awake with very low blood pressure. So don't, don't actually uh, get getting confused by that, and this patient actually turned out to be exsanguinating from retroperitoneal hemorrhage, and um, luckily the ED staff was on it and and figured this out early on. All right, another question I received, and I've received this a bunch over the years, and I I never really addressed it, but I had done that podcast way, way back on the laryngoscope as a murder weapon on intubating the metabolic acidosis patient. Obviously, the issue we have here is they uh, in, in most circumstances, they're providing incredible degrees of respiratory alkalosis as compensation, and without that, they die, right? And so the question becomes, you know, should we use the recommended approach that I put in that original podcast, the MCRID approach, is to RSI them with augmentation using non-invasive before bagging them during the apneic period, then an immediate placement of them on a very profound uh, respiratory rate and minute ventilation. So for instance, those numbers for me would be uh, 30 breaths a minute and 10 cc's per kg. I don't care about their... ALI during this first hour or so, it's fine. They're not going to have a problem from that 10 cc's. Um, and and just do that empirically until I can get a blood gas and see where I stand. Um, now, obviously, you have to make sure they're not air trapping and that actually 30 cc's and 10 mls per kg is actually going in. But assuming it is, that's where I start them. Um, the question comes up, um, and I've heard this before, oh, shouldn't we just give them ketamine instead and doing them awake? And look, I, you, as you know, if you're a listener, I am a huge fan of... Um, awake intubation for physiologic difficulty. Um, Now whether that means an oxygenation issue or a hemodynamic issue, uh, I'm a huge fan of awake, whether that means topicalized awake or ketamine awake intubation. Um, In either case, You know, I I love that for those patients. I got to say, for these metabolically acidotic patients, I actually prefer RSI. And now I'll tell you why. And this question specifically was on ketamine awake, because I think if you did a topicalized awake, you'd be okay. I think you're just making additional difficulty for yourself unless there's actually an anatomical difficulty as well or some other physiologic issue besides the metabolic acidosis. But if it looks like a routine airway and you're just doing them awake for the acidosis, I don't think that's the clever way to go. I'd much rather just get them intubated as rapidly as possible because ostensibly the reason you're intubating these patients is because they're already flagging on their compensation. Otherwise, why intubate them? Just leave them. Uh, to do the work themselves, even if they are somewhat uptunded, like you see constantly in the DKA patients. But they're, if they're maintaining their airway and they're doing incredible Kussmaul, just leave them the hell alone. Don't intubate them. So if you're intubating them, it's oftentimes because they're failing their own respiratory compensation. You know, they're starting to get tired. They're not doing it anymore. So uh, I, I augment, like I had mentioned with BiPAP, I, I bag during the apneic period. And I intubate them as rapidly as possible with an experienced intubator using paralysis such that I could get the tube in quickly. Now, why not just do a ketamine awake intubation? right? Uh, the, the topicalized, you know, is fine because they'll maintain their same respiratory drive. Um, but the ketamine, like people like that better as an option. It, it doesn't require the skill set of topicalization. Why not do that? Well, I've done this experiment a couple of times at, on patients who, um, primarily, actually, yeah, both of them were DKA who were getting intubated for other reasons. Like they had bad pneumonia or some other form of sepsis and they just weren't making it. And so we decided to intubate them. And I, I did the experiment. I gave them ketamine, um, in a modified DSI type approach just to see what happens. And what happens to their minute ventilation is it goes down significantly. They're still hyperventilating. Don't get me wrong. The ketamine will maintain Kussmaul uh, respiration. They will be respiratory alkalotic, but not nearly as much as they were before the ketamine. Ketamine is doing something that's telling their brain, no, no, you thought you were dying because of this incredible acidosis, but no, no, it's okay. Life's, life's better than you thought. And they chill a little bit and their minute ventilation goes down. It doesn't go down to normal. They're still hyperventilating, but you lose a significant portion of your respiratory compensation. And as such, I don't think ketamine awake is ideal for these patients unless, like I said, there's something else going on. Like they have profound oxygenation issues or d- afraid they'll die of an oxygenation issue during the intubation or they have anatomical predictors of a difficult airway, in which case, by all means, go for it, either topicalized or ketamine awake, but I'm not a big fan of ketamine uh, for the standard metabolic acidosis intubation. All right, I have a question here from David B. He is doing a um, anesthesia critical care gig and he um, has found that during cardiac arrest, the people in his hospital, before the patient gets intubated, are doing the 30 compressions, stop compressions, two bag breaths, start compressions again, um, you know, standard ACLS. And now he's concerned that we learned how so much and we have literature to support that continuous compressions are the way to save these patients' lives and any interruption is a problem. And he wants to really question the basis for why this 32 is there. And I will say that even though I intrinsically agree with you, David, that the literature actually doesn't support either of us. Now, I'll tell you why I think the literature is as it is, but I believe it was Graham Nichols who did the study on this of looking at continuous versus the uh, breasts uh, being done during a break and actually discovered that in the pre-hospital environment, the break for breasts actually was better than continuous. Now, why is this? My supposition, I've mentioned this on a podcast already is that it's because it keeps the people from doing, you know, the 60 breaths a minute continuous that prevents any venous return from happening in the chest. If you do those breaks, even though it would be inferior to a proper, you know, eight breaths a, uh, a minute situation, it's better than the 60 breaths a minute. So the, the pause forces people to not give too many breaths. Um, that's my supposition. Now, we don't have great evidence of whether it's safe to actually give BVM-only breaths during uh, compressions during continuous compressions because uh, you might not get many breaths in. If you're really sticking to that eight breaths a minute and uh, you have a face mask on, it's very easy for that gas to leak around the sides because it's an incredible. you have to really get up to a high pressure to overcome the compression uh, force externally of the compressions themselves on the lungs. And you, you'll see this, like the vent needs to be up to like 80 or 100 centimeters pressure limit in order to get a breath in during compressions. And now if it just so happened during that minute that uh, all of your breasts were during compressions, then you didn't get any breasts in. And I think that's the actual logic. And since we do only have studies saying it's better to do the 32 than the continuous, uh, in this circumstance, I think it's gonna be hard to change right now to continuous compressions without another study. Even though I agree with you, I think it's actually, I think the best of all worlds until a uh, skilled intubator gets there is just throw down an LMA with n title on it and do continuous compressions with LMA breasts. And even if that means you know pushing a little bit harder than you normally would on the bag to get that breath in. But we don't have evidence to support us. Oh, I'm so sorry. There is that dreaded sound, the sound you don't want to hear, the sound you wouldn't hear if you were already a member of the MCRIT podcast. You would be hearing a bunch of other Question and answers right now, but instead, you're hearing this spiel where I beg you to do the best thing for your patients to make you the most adept critical care and resuscitation practitioner, to get the most recent, up to date information on taking care of your super sick patients, to get all of the goodness that comes with a membership in MCRIT, the monthly rack literature reviews, question and answer sessions like this, um, interaction uh, on the site that you just miss out on by not being a member. Look, there's more foam on MCRIT than most other places, but there's a lot of good, good stuff that you're not getting as a unpaid listener. So please consider just coming on over to MCRIT.org slash join. It's cheap, it's good, you get CME, and you will get the best possible potential to take care of your sickest patients in the department, whether it be in ED, pre-hospital, or the ICU. Scott Weingart from the MCRIT Podcast saying bye-bye.